You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual The way I remember it, we were all on the subway together and we had to get off at a stop. And so Terry stepped off the train and I stepped off the train and then the doors slammed shut behind me before DJ, our son, could step off the train. And as I remember it, we were on the platform freaking out. DJ was inside the train freaking out. Terry pounded on the doors of the train. A couple of people inside the train. Those people in New York City who, if you listen to people in red states, don't care about anyone and are just thieves and criminals and crooks and queers, people in the train saw what was happening, leapt into action and began to pry the doors apart before the train could take off. And then the conductor leaned out, saw what was happening, what the commotion was about, and popped the doors open and DJ got off. There was a threat just for an instant that we would be separated from our son, and we were in a white hot panic, and we were shaking afterwards for a very long time. I remember everything that happened in vivid detail, but I wasn't there. I remember it as if I was there. Terry told me this story later that day, as soon as we saw each other again, and I had a panic attack. And memory plays tricks on you. This is more than a decade ago now that this happened. Memory plays tricks on you. And that was so scary and so panic-inducing that in my memory, I was there. In my memory, informed by the panic attacks I had about it afterwards, I projected myself into the experience. Because it was so harrowing for my son and so harrowing for my husband. And I was likewise harrowed buy it. And somehow in my memory now, it's so vivid. I'm there on the platform as it's happening. Although I was not there on the platform as it was happening. Terry was alone with DJ as it was happening. And I keep turning that experience over in my head as I read stories in the newspapers about infants being pulled out of their mother's arms while they're breastfeeding, about toddlers being dragged away from their parents in tears their parents who are not allowed to say goodbye to them, about parents being told that their children are being taken away to bathe and then realizing a half an hour, an hour, two, three, four, five, six hours later that they're not going to see their children again. And I'm filled with such rage and such despair and such fucking rage at the motherfuckers who are running this country, pick your metaphor, into the ground, off a cliff, Stick an eye in there and just go with ruining this country. Some of us who are old enough to remember the fight for marriage equality remember debating people on the right who are now out there. Sometimes the very same people looking at you, Rick fucking frothy mix Santorum defending this policy who all through the marriage equality debate so that they opposed marriage equality. Because every child deserves a mother and a father and every child deserves to be raised by their biological mothers and fathers. And these motherfuckers are out there defending this. Children in cages, children ripped from the arms of their parents, infants snatched away from their mothers as they're being breastfed. And 
putting them in cages and herding them into camps. And you sit there with the rage that you feel. And then on top of that come the lies, come Trump saying this is a democratic policy and a democratic law and the Dems, only the Dems can fix it, which is a fucking lie. This is a policy change rolled out by the White House, crafted by Stephen Miller, backed by John Kelly, backed initially by Donald J. fucking lying asshole gaslighter in chief Trump. And now you have one of his cabinet members out there saying that there is no such policy. Even as reporters are being admitted to the detention camps and we are getting to see them for the first time, getting to see the pictures of children herded into cages in the United States by our government, in our names, on our dime, then we have to be lied to about it. Then you get on Twitter and there are the motherfuckers lying on Twitter. Well, what do you expect? They committed a crime. They're going to have their children taken from them. Their parents go to jail. The kids go into foster care. These aren't people who are committing a crime. It is legal to show up at the border, at a legal border crossing, and ask for asylum. This is new. This is different. This is disgusting. And the children swept up in this are likely to have been damaged for life by this experience. As Josh Marshall at Talking Points Memo and others have pointed out, Trump is basically rolling this out as a hostage situation. Nice kids some of these people fleeing violence in Central America have. Shame if something should happen to them. Give me my money. Give me my money for the wall or I'm going to keep doing this to these kids. I'm going to keep torturing these kids and torturing these parents if you don't give me the money for the wall. The most important thing we can do about this is vote in fucking November and vote these motherfuckers out. Dem majorities in the Senate, dem majorities in the House that can begin to take our country back from the braying, fascistic, authoritarian, racist mob that the GOP has assembled and disinhibited and called their base. Sorry, Jeff Flake, this is exactly who Republicans are. This is exactly so long as there is an R next to your name, Jeff Flake, and you are not caucusing with the Democrats in the Senate for the remainder of your term. This is exactly who you are, motherfucker. We got to vote these fuckers out. If you're interested in what else you can do, Dahlia Lithwick at Slate has a great rundown. The ACLU is litigating this. Make a donation to the American Civil Liberties Union. We've donated tens of thousands of dollars that we've raised for the ACLU via the ITMFA campaign. Kick in some extra money. Just go to ACLU.org and click on Donate. But there's much more you can do. Please go read Here's How You Can Help Fight Family Separation at the Border by Dahlia Lithwick and Margot Schlanger. At Slate, I'm tempted to just read out the whole thing for you, but you can read it yourself. You are online. You're listening to podcasts. You are online. You know how to navigate the worldwide webs. Go read it and stay angry. It's really hard, isn't it, to stay outraged when there's so much outrage coming at us day after day after day? It is hard to stay engaged and hard to stay angry. And it is important every once in a while for our mental health to disengage. I spent a chunk of this weekend stoned out of my mind and at the movies we will call that self-care whatever your self-care looks like right now during the trump nightmare please don't feel guilty or let anyone guilt you about leaning into whatever your particular preferred self-care might look like but then when you sober up the next morning and the pot wears off later that afternoon or evening do something and an easy, simple thing for you to do, a very doable thing, again, get online, make a donation to the ACLU. They are fighting this. 
And these kids, these kids need lawyers. If you are a lawyer, if you are an immigration lawyer, the American Immigration Lawyers Association is looking for volunteers to represent these kids and their families. So any lawyers out there listening, any immigration lawyers out there listening who aren't already in the fight, and I think probably all of you are, I don't think people become immigration lawyers because they hate immigrants, please step up. But the most important thing we can do to stop the daily outrage, the abuse of our environment, of our citizens, a renewed attack on Obamacare to deny health insurance to tens of millions of Americans and to strip out from the ACA, if they can, requirements that health insurance cover pre-existing conditions, which is just a bank shot way of denying everyone ultimately in the end health insurance because we all got pre-existing conditions sometime. Fastest way to fight all this, the most effective way to fight all this is to get into the fight for November. If you live in a safe blue spot and the urban archipelago, the blue dots that turn states from red states to blue states, it is urban America. Urban America is liberal and progressive. If you live in a place where you're already represented by a Dem, look around, look nearby. There is a campaign in the burbs or the exurbs near you that you can get involved with. Don't just say my rep's cool and sit down. Find a nearby district where you can make a difference, where you can canvas, where you can call, where you can volunteer and get out there and do it for your country, for the Atlantic Alliance, for these kids. All right. Coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, twice as long and no ads, subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Sex researcher Sam Hughes joins us to discuss something that fascinates a lot of my listeners kinks. Why do some of us have them? Where do they come from? What can we do about them? That's on the Magnum coming up. Hey, Dan. I am really confused. I think I was just a victim of sexual assault. I had a Amazon boy deliver my package over a year ago in a hundred degree heat. And I was polite enough to invite him in my house and give him some water because he asked. And we ended up having a conversation about dogs and how he has a dog and I gave him my number and I told him some basic information about myself, such as like I'm married. We had moved to the area recently. Um, we live in the North Bay area and we didn't speak again for months. He ended up texting me randomly in the middle of the year, just asking how my day was. And I don't, I never responded. And then today out of nowhere, I ended up getting nine text messages, just a slew of very, very odd requests, I guess, and dick dick pics saying that he had spoken with my husband on a Tumblr feed and saying that all I had wanted was a black dick and someone to come inside of me. And I responded aggressively saying I'm reporting to Amazon because I don't want him. He knows where I live. I don't want him near my house or near me. I told him I'm reporting this to the cops for sexual assault. And I told him I'm blocking his number because I do not want him contacting me. He then, you know, texted me back and he said, I apologize. I'm sure the information I got might have been different. I'm so sorry. I'm not a sexual predator. Please don't report me. I haven't responded to that text message and I'm planning on blocking his number. And I feel bad because I feel like I'm almost sex shaming this guy. But at the same time, this guy knows where I live. He knows my cell phone number. He knows my basic information about me. Is there anything else I should have done? Um, I'm really looking for feedback from either you or from anybody else who's listening. I could really use some help because I'm definitely freaked out about this. First, a, a little perspective. You are not the victim of a sexual assault. You're not even, I'm sorry to say, the victim of sexual harassment. You haven't been assaulted. You weren't physically assaulted. 
getting some text messages and a dick pic or two or three or nine from some asshole doesn't make you the, the victim of, of sexual assault. Makes you the victim of some unwelcome, unpleasant assholery that you told him to stop and told him that you were going to report him and he stopped means technically, legally, you are also not the victim of sexual harassment. Harassment kicks in when somebody makes a pass at you or asks you out and you say no and leave me alone and they persist. They continue to send you unwelcome text messages or emails or calls and continue to ask you out and continue to send you those horrifying dick pics that nobody wants to receive. Which is not to say that this isn't unnerving and unpleasant and Yes, if I was on the receiving end of similar treatment, I would feel extremely unsafe in my own home, knowing that this person who clearly doesn't have good judgment and clearly has boundary issues and clearly has some odd active fantasies about the person that I am. What is it with this Tumblr account where he claims to have spoken to your husband about you wanting this? That didn't happen, I assume. I expect that you've touched base with your husband about that and that did not fucking happen, which means this person is a fantasist with your phone number and who knows if indeed he remembers where you live. Block his number. In the future, when you want to offer a glass of water to a service person who's come to your house, offer it to them on the porch. And perhaps in the future, don't give your phone number to near strangers. People you don't really know anything about, which is not to shift the blame or the responsibility onto your shoulders. It's his responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility not to be an asshole and not to make women feel unsafe in their own homes by showering them with dick pics. But we can also, while putting responsibility where it ultimately lays, take proactive measures to protect ourselves, like not handing out our phone number to strangers. I think you should report him to his employer. I don't think that you should call the police. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe somebody will call in who is a lawyer or a cop and explain how I'm wrong about this, but there has been no crime committed here. He made you feel unsafe and uncomfortable in your own home by sending you those text messages. He has not sent you an additional text message after you told him to not get the fuck off. So he is not harassing you. And he did not assault you, which doesn't make what he did okay, which doesn't mean that you're in the wrong for feeling unnerved or that you're in the wrong for reporting him to Amazon. Please report him to his employer. Doesn't mean that you're in the wrong blocking his phone number. You should block his phone number now. Why are you hesitating to block his phone number? Do it. Do it now. As I've said and hammered it away at and endeavored to get through the sometimes thick but not always impermeable skulls of the straight boys who listen to this show, women live every day in fear of male sexual violence. So I understand why these text messages and why this person knowing where you live is as unnerving as it is and why the, the depth of the discomfort and the, the acuteness of that violation makes you feel as if you have been sexually assaulted. Or makes this feel sexual assault adjacent, harassment adjacent, when it is not technically assault or harassment. This is deeply unnerving behavior for a woman to be on the receiving end of because of the appalling levels of sexual violence that women are subjected to by men day in, day out. So I get where you're coming from and, and I understand and I empathize. 
but you're not going to get anywhere calling the police because no crime has been committed. And in the future, water on the porch and no phone numbers to people that you don't know from fucking Adam. Hey, Dan, I'm a 23-year-old female straight person, heterosexual, um, living in New York City. And I just have like a thought question, I guess. Um, My roommate recently has been complaining about me having loud sex. And um, it was super tense for a while, so then I approached her about it. And to her, she said that hearing me have sex is a violation of her consent because she did not consent to hearing me have sex. This is also after... Uh, about three weeks ago when she had asked me to stop walking around the house naked, even though she had originally said it was okay. So I guess my question is, like, what do you think? Do you think that walking around the house naked and having loud sex noises is a violation of consent? I think that's like a really loose interpretation of the term consent. And I think she kind of just has a massive stick up her ass. But (laughs) I'd like to know what you think. I think your roommate is a crazy person. When it comes to overhearing you have sex, if you're going to have roommates... You are going to overhear your roommates doing things. You're going to overhear your roommate getting up in the middle of the night and getting a bowl of cereal. You're going to overhear your roommate taking a dump. You're going to overhear your roommate making a call. And you're going to overhear your roommate choking on a dick. That just comes bundled with roommates. So on that score, your roommate's entirely out of line. Oh, my God. If you have sex in such a way where I can hear it, you have violated my consent. That is bullshit. That said, I think it's within her right as your roommate to say, I don't want to see your ass walking around naked. Thought I might be down when you were about to move in, said I might be okay with that. The reality of you walking around naked, not so into it. So yeah, throw something on, would you? Just to be considerate because we share this space. We have to find a way to live with each other where we're being respectful of each other's boundaries and comfort levels. And it is a reasonable boundary to say to your roommate, I don't want to see you naked. Not a reasonable thing to say to your roommate, I don't ever want to hear you fuck. Got roommates? You're going to hear them fuck. Got neighbors? Probably going to hear them fuck too. We are social animals, we humans. We clump up. We clump up increasingly in urban centers. We live cheek by jowl. And you will overhear people having sex just as our ancestors 200, 300,000 years ago on the African savanna overheard each other having sex in the cave under the next bush, on top of the next tree. It just comes with being a human. You will be subjected to other people's sex noises. Don't like it? Build yourself a soundproof booth that you can sleep in at night. Hey, Dan. It's a caller from Western Canada calling. Uh, I've got your not-so-typical husband has high libido, wife has low libido question for you. Currently struggling with that kind of thing. I've got a rather high libido. My wife has a rather low libido. And, you know, we have basic vanilla sex every couple weeks or so. And in the meantime, I kind of make up for it by masturbating when I can uh, late at night when everyone else is in bed. Now, my problem that I have is that my wife will go through a period of about eh, 24 to 48 hours every three or four months where she's incredibly horny. And we go from the vanilla sex once every two weeks to literally everything under the sun. Like we're talking anal, uh, dress-up stuff. And it can go one of two ways. Either I get really excited because of the prospect of this happening and I come in 30 seconds. Or I get performance anxiety and I can't perform. Which bums me out because this only happens once every four months. 
So I guess my question to you is, what do I do? I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to handle the feast and famine that I've currently got going on right now. And it's driving me a little nuts. So these times when your wife suddenly gets horny every couple of months, every few months, she goes through these 36, 48, hopefully 72 hour periods where she's just got to have it. Yeah. That's what happens. Uh, Pretty much. And, and it, I haven't been able to figure out what or why or how or but all I know is that they're very infrequent and they're very unexpected. And when that happens, you who I, I think maybe are a little sex starved in between those times or maybe a little bored. Is that fair to say? That would put, put it mildly, yeah. <laughs> Suddenly you have a hard time getting it up, even though you can now do with the wife all the things you've fantasized about doing with the wife during the dry spell, or you come too quickly. That's right. That's the problem. Can't get it up to come That's, too quickly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely performance anxiety. Because I, you know, in my brain, I'm like, okay, this is the one. If I, don't, if I, if I get it right here, then maybe she'll want more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and inevitably that kind of just backfires, and it either happens too quickly because I'm excited. Or I'm like, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And right, you know, and so. Okay, well, I think the, you need to tell yourself, and you need to believe that if you whiff one, if you miss the opportunity one of these times when she gets super duper crazy horny and is up for anything, that it's not going to result in her never going into heat again in the way that she seems to. That this is cyclical yeah. and happens for her regularly, and whether or not this comes up for her isn't dependent on your performance on any of these occasions. And you just right. have to believe that you have to tell yourself that over and over again until you believe it. And then you need to, you know, it's just a simple performance anxiety problem. And the solution always for performance anxiety is to take the pressure off. And, and that means, yeah. you know, shifting expectations or changing people's expectations about what's going to happen. If everything is rock hard cock dependent in that moment, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on you to like, Break out the rock hard cock. <laughs> and so yeah. the convo you need to have with your wife is these are wonderful times. I enjoy this. I look forward to these moments when you go into heat and I'm not shaming you that, you know, in between these moments, you're not up for as many things as you are in these moments. I treasure these times. Puts a lot of pressure on my dick and sometimes that gets in my head. So oral toys rolling around, yeah. right? If, if I come right away, we can keep going. My tongue is still hard, as hard as I can make it. My forearm and fingers and hands are still hard. If we get some dildos and toys, and hopefully you're not one of those guys who's threatened by busting out a vibrator or busting out a dildo. We, we have a plethora. We have, we have a treasure chest. Okay. I sit there and, and collect dust. And then literally once every four months it comes out. and Yeah. So this is not a problem then. This is just a convo you need to have with the wife where you say, this is how you work. This, I, th- we've been together long enough that I can see that you know this pattern. We're both conscious and cognizant of this pattern, and it's how you work yeah. and how I work. And it's not ideal, but you know I'm human, and how I work is when this suddenly you know it's Christmas morning, I get a little nervous. It can get into my head. <laughs> so toys, tongues, vibrators, dick. If I come too soon, we can keep going. And you'll find if you say these things to someone that you're less likely to lose your erection. You're less likely to have performance anxiety when you know that your performance is not entirely dependent on having a rock hard cock every single second. So like, like you said in multiple, multiple calls, uh, put the caveat out there that this may not go well and then they take all the pressure off. Exactly. No, no, it's not yeah. even saying it may not go well. It's that your ex, we're going to change our expectations. It may not go well if our expectations are 
PIV or PIA or PIM intercourse with my rock hard cock and everything's rock hard cock dependent. And that kind of gets in my head. Right. And that can throw you out of the moment. And so our expectations now we're going to have amazing, hot, fun, crazy sex in these three to four month intervals when you suddenly need it bad and need it in lots of different ways. And I'm going to give it to you, but it might not be Dick every single time or the whole time. Now, what do I do in the, in the the three, three months dry spell? Like right now we're in about a three weeks now from like nothing. Three weeks of no sex at all. Pretty much. Yeah. Oy, oy, oy. Do you talk about that honestly with the wife? Like these dry spells? Yeah. And it always ends up, it always ends up in a fight. And I mean, like she goes to bed at 10 o'clock at night. She's dead exhausted. And I'm a, two o'clock in the morning kind of guy. And, uh, it her She's, she's historically stated that her favorite time is two o'clock in the afternoon, but mm. we're both at work. So <laughs> it's not working. Yeah. And like we've, we've, tr- we've tried the non-monogamy thing. Uh, I'm not capable of doing that because I get too attached. I, I don't, I get too addicted to the, the new relationship energy. And I just, I, I, I act inappropriately. So I know that for me, that's not an option I can do. And it's not possible with your jobs for you to pop over for lunch. Not at all, unfortunately. It's just not, Ian. We're in, we're in two, two different sides of the city. Well, the trick is in a situation like this not to let resentment creep in and poison everything and ruin everything. And that's what it's doing right now. Like, it's, it's been a 15-year kind of build-up of this, this resentment. Is, this is a logistical problem, not a lack of attraction problem and a timing problem. And the solution is some effort being made. And, and this is on her, some effort being made between these three, four-month crazy times between going into heat where you are indulged, you are pleasured or accommodated. And that is, as I like to call it, and this is something that we've done. I've done in my own relationship. We call it assisted (laughs) masturbation. I'm not feeling it right now, but I'm going to help you out. Yeah. And hopefully she's willing to do that. Hopefully when she's not, you know, aroused when she's not horny, she's not repulsed by you. And it would be capable of just having a seat on your face while you lay there and jack off. (laughs) Or if you like having your tits played with, lay beside you and play with your tits and say a couple of dirty things into your ear. But no expectations. It's about shifting expectations. No expectation on her that she has to put out. No expectation on her that she's going to get fucked. Yeah. Right? And in the same way that shifting the expectations or changing them or broadening them will free you up and result in less performance anxiety, destroying your boner, changing the expectations may make it get easier for her to engage with you at those times when she's not particularly horny. Because if she fears like, all right, he's horny. I'm not horny. If I help him out, he's going to want to fuck me and I don't feel it. I don't want to get fucked right now. So I can't help him out because he's going to try to upgrade to sex and I'm not feeling it. So I can't risk even being a little bit intimate for fear of having to say no and if you can promise yeah. her at these moments when I need a masturbatory assist, I promise you, I'm not going to try to weasel my way into your pussy. I promise. Oh, you. honestly, I, I never do that because actually that's not my favorite thing to do. So uh, I never pressure in that regard. So. Well, then the solution to this, and hopefully your wife, maybe make her listen to, to this advice, is, <laughs> is for her to meet you not even halfway. This is meeting you, you know, a, a 15th of the way, a 20th of the way. That Yeah. You're in your relationship. You masturbate a lot. 
and that's okay. And hopefully she doesn't tell you not to masturbate or blow up if she discovers that you've looked at porn to meet your own needs. No, she's, she's, she's very respectful about that. Okay. I, I try and kind of, I try and kind of blow the cap off as much as I can to take the, the pressure off. But sometimes, you know, it just, Right. Sometimes, sometimes you need intimacy and physical contact. You need intimacy and physical contact. And she can provide that for you without it being sex, without the expectations being as putting her under pressure in the same way the expectations, her expectations, put you under pressure when she's in heat. That in between right. those times, you may ask her and you have to ask without resentment and ask without bitterness. Ask her to like, just come lay down with me for a few minutes. I, I just need, I need to get off and I want it to be something we did together. You don't have to do anything. Lay beside me or let me, you know, touch your breasts or have a seat on my face while I have a wank. Okay. A masturbatory assist is is a reasonable accommodation when there's mixed matched libidos. It can't all be on the higher libido partner to starve and starve and starve and go without, go without, go without. But it's easier for the low but libido I, I partner to, be more to yeah, you have to be more proactive. You have to put it out there. It's easier for the low libido partner to provide that masturbatory assist if the person receiving it isn't attempting to upgrade that to full sex, which the partner with the lower libido didn't want, right, is willing to accept that yep. it is a masturbatory assist, assisted masturbation, yep. not sex. Good luck. Thank you very much for calling. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old straight female in Texas. I've been dating this guy for about six months, and it's been fun. If I'm totally honest, I don't think I see it being much more than fun in the long run, but he is the best sex I've ever had. He's really into swinging and sleeping with other people and watching and all the fun things. I'm new to the lifestyle and enjoying a lot of it, but I'm still figuring out what I do and don't like and can and can't tolerate. My biggest issue right now is that he is a serial Tinder Bumble app guy. Like, is always on these apps, constantly swiping and chatting with girls. I'd be lying if I said it didn't bother me a little bit. He's totally open about it and lets me read through the convos, and this is purely for entertainment value. Okay? But it turns my stomach a little, and I've been having a really hard time with reading the convos and switch over to text, i.e. girls he has some intention of meeting and possibly sleeping with. They're so explicit, and I get that awful feeling in the pit of my stomach every time I read them. The conversations and snaps get etched in my brain on repeat, and I conjure all these images and scenarios in my head. I'm torn between wanting to know and not wanting to know because I have that visceral reaction every time. It's a mix of fear and insecurity that I don't know how to overcome. Add to this that I don't get on any apps and don't have these conversations with anyone, nor do I particularly want to. He slept with girls without me, but I have not played without him. Where do I go from here? I enjoy hanging out with him, and I really don't want to lose the sex because it's amazing. I'm not really sure how to deal with this. There are people who are into non-monogamy or into open relationships in theory, but not in practice. And sometimes it's the person themselves who it doesn't work for them in practice. Just knowing that their partner sleeps with other people, unnerves them or, or makes them unhappy or the reptile brain jealousy trumps whatever higher brain affinity they may have for open relationships as a model and a concept and it just doesn't work for them. But sometimes it doesn't work for them in practice because the person that they're attempting to have an open relationship with in practice is being an inconsiderate asshole. And I think that's the case here that this might work for you in practice and not just in theory, if your boyfriend was a little bit more considerate on the apps, a little less, maybe on Tinder, a little less chatting with fewer women or keeping this out of sight. Even if you knew it was going on, you want a little plausible deniability. You want to be able to, 
feel more secure in the relationship and not constantly be thinking and wondering about all the women that he has stacked up over Atlanta like planes at a hub airport, air traffic control, bringing them in for a landing. That makes you feel insecure. That makes you unhappy. It unnerves you. And that's not an open relationship problem. That's an open relationship with this particular guy problem. That he may want more sex with more people than you're comfortable with in an open relationship. That for you, it would work better as a once in a while thing or something that you did together. You've only been with other people since you've been with him together and that works for you. He wants to be with lots of other people in addition to you and is constantly lining it up. That doesn't work for you. That doesn't mean an open relationship won't work for you. It means the kind of open relationship that works for him isn't the kind of open relationship that works for you. If he wants to be in relationship with you and an open relationship with you, he may have to adjust. He may have to engage with other women a little differently. That may be the price of admission that he has to pay to be with you. It isn't a price of admission that he's willing to pay. If not to change the way that he interacts with other women, to be a little bit more circumspect about it in deference to your insecurities, to take into account who you are and how you feel, then this isn't going to work. Hi, Dan. Um, my 13-year-old daughter came out as gay to me a couple months ago. The conversation was really sweet. Like, a lot of, a lot of I love you's back and forth, so that part went great. Of course, she's 13 and part of Gen Z, so she has all this extra lingo at her disposal. So what she actually came out to me as was homo-romantic asexual. So she has crushes on girls, but has no sexual interest. So put a pin in that one for a second. So apparently other than her friend group, I'm the only one she's told. Like I'm the only grown up in her life that she's told, uh, which at first I was like very honored. And, you know, she lives with her mom most of the time. So I was kind of like, Oh, as the non-custodial parent, Hey, I'm winning this divorce. Um, but like, as more time is going on, I'm starting to be like, Oh, it's getting weirder that she hasn't told her mom yet. And I kind of don't know if I should do anything because her mom is a conservative Christian but one of the more sane ones, if that makes sense, like she's definitely, as far as I know, anti-gay marriage, but I doubt it frankly ever comes up at home. It's probably, she probably just doesn't even talk about it at home. I guess what I'm wondering is like, should I try and help my daughter prepare for that conversation to come out to her mom? Um, Cause I kind of don't want to put any extra anxiety into her head over on the conversation. If it isn't actually there, like if there's other reasons she hasn't told her mom, besides the fact that her mom is a conservative Christian, I kind of don't want to create that anxiety. Um, and really like, I don't feel any guilt over it to begin with, just, um, like not telling the mom just because, you know, it's not my story to tell. Plus, you know, if she's asexual, then mom literally has nothing to worry about at the moment. Um, but I guess second thing I'm curious about is like the asexual thing, like at 14, I, you know, or 13, like I wasn't interested in sex either, you know, like, so I'm wondering, like, I don't want to be that parent who's like, Oh, you'll grow out of it. It's just a phase. But should I kind of worry about it? Because I guess I'm worried about, you know, if she identifies as ace now, is that going to create a groove in her head if, you know, when she eventually comes into her sexuality, she's going to still have that in her head of like, no, I'm asexual and create kind of like a negative groove in her head or in her brain over the whole sexuality thing. So what do you think, Dan? Should I help her come out to her mom and should I worry or like keep an eye on the whole asexual thing? I don't know. In answer to your first question, leave mom the fuck out of it. Don't pressure your daughter to come out to her mother. She's a conservative Christian. Maybe she seems decent and kind and loving and not too hung up on the sex, but people can have incredibly weird and unpredictable reactions when their own children come out to them and that mom is a conservative Christian, which is something that your daughter is no doubt acutely aware of, makes her a more dangerous person to come out to than dad was. There's a reason she came out to you first. She may 
want to wait until she's less vulnerable than she is now. Kids whose parents have terrible reactions when they come out are at greater risk of suicide. Kids who come out and mom or dad or both have bigoted, horrible, off-the-hook reactions. Your daughter, if she's online and she's learning about things like asexuality and homoromanticism, has no doubt encountered the stories of people who came out to a parent or the wrong parent or the wrong sets of parents and suffered terribly in the aftermath. As a result, 40% of homeless teenagers or LGBTQ kids who were kicked out or thrown out after they came out or were outed to their families. There are risks and dangers there, even if one parent is supportive. Your daughter most likely knows all this, and there's a reason she's not telling mom. Don't game out telling mom. Tell her you respect her, tell her that you love her, and tell her that you understand that coming out is a process and it takes time and she'll come out to different people in her life when she is ready. You don't even have to mention mom. As for the asexuality thing, yeah, 13. When I was 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, I told people I was bi. And people in my life generally kind of accepted that even though I knew it wasn't true or I realized shortly after I began telling people that that it wasn't true. That doesn't mean that there aren't actually bisexual guys in the world. It doesn't mean that everybody who's bi is going through a phase. But some people, young people in particular, try on identities, embrace labels that can be transitional for some. Your daughter may not, in the end, be asexual. Tell her that you love her. Again, tell her that you respect who she is and how she identifies. But that can change. Not that you're invested in it changing. If she is asexual all her life, you're down. But she should just keep listening to herself, listening to her sexuality, listen to that little voice in her head, listening to her crotch. And see where she goes, if she goes anywhere at all. And wherever she lands, wherever she winds up, you will love her. The same crowd that gets online and talks about gender identity, talks about sexual orientation, talks about games out, coming out to parents, the same places online where people get familiar with and comfortable with terms like asexuality and homoromantic and heteroromantic. They also talk a lot about how gender and sexuality is fluid. And I think that that's a good opening to speak with your daughter. This is her identity. You accept it. You respect her. You love her. Identities change. That there is a fluidity. That gender and sexuality for many people is fluid. And that she should continue to be true to herself. And if it's true right now and true to herself that she is asexual and so identifies, great. And five years from now, she should be true to herself then. And if she still identifies as asexual then, Yahtzee. And if she identifies as something else, then Yahtzee as well. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s woman living in Houston, Texas. Um, and I'm just wondering, well, I have two questions. The first is I kind of have ravishment fantasies, um, but I'm also a feminist. And as a result, you know, I've been trying to watch a lot more feminist porn, but it's been hard for me to find something that kind of intersects with that. Um, and I was just wondering if you knew anybody or if you had any suggestions for female porn directors or creators uh, that I should look at where, you know, I don't like seeing the, like, really, really degrading, I guess, just, like, porn that's available nowadays, but also some of the feminist porn out there is a little too romantic for me. Uh, my other question is, as somebody who does have those types of fantasies, 
I was wondering if you had any suggestions for how me and my partner can kind of get started with that or if there are any resources available for getting into that. You don't have to frame it as I have ravishment fantasies, but I'm also a feminist. It is so common for people to have sexual fantasies that are in wild contrast to who they are in reality. But I think you can say I have ravishment fantasies and I am a feminist, that those things are not in conflict. If anything, they're erotically linked. Not that every feminist has ravishment fantasies, not that everyone who has ravishment fantasies is a feminist, but it is, we talk about this a lot on the show, a cliche that the high-powered CEO wants to go to see the dominatrix and be made to crawl and beg, that the out-and-proud gay man wants to be called a faggot when he's being fucked in the ass, that the feminist wants to have her hair pulled and her ass slapped and be called a slut during sex. Not all feminists Check with your particular feminist. Those are not moves you bust on anyone. But we often have fantasies that seem in some way to contradict who we are or cancel out who we are or be in conflict with who we are. And that is not a bug. That's a feature that in fantasy we can flip the script. We can explore our fears. We can explore different roles. We can be who we are not. We can be the opposite of what we work at being every day when we leave the house, right? Because sometimes it is an effort to be the dominant CEO in charge of the whole world. And sometimes it's an effort in this culture to be an out and proud gay man. And it's certainly an effort in our culture to be a feminist with all of the shit and grief that's thrown at women and, if you're online, particularly thrown at feminists. And to have this set time where you can let go of that and not have to make that effort and relax into your eroticized fears, that can be empowering. So feminist and ravishment fantasies, not in conflict any more than CEO and BDSM fantasies in conflict or gay and call me by my name faggot fantasies are in conflict. You might want to start with, I always recommend Violet Blue, blogger and sex writer, and Tristan Taramino, blogger, sex writer, author, and pornographer. Good places to start. Google those names. You'll go right to their websites. They track and write about the best feminist porn that is made out there, and you will find through them ravishment porn made by feminists. And also, if any listeners have some suggestions, call in. We will share them at the end of the show. Actually, we have a guest later in the show on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, sex researcher Sam Hughes, where we do a deeper dive into this conflict that people perceive that isn't actually a conflict. One last thing I'll point you to, go to mandlow.com. They wrote a post a few years ago, how to make your ravishment fantasy come true. And it is, I think, the step-by-step guide, the advice that you need and from a woman's perspective or two women's perspective. So rather than uh, bust that out for you to myself, I'm just going to refer you to mandlow.com. You can go to their website or you can just Google how to make your ravishment fantasy come true. And it's the first thing that pops up. Hi, Dan. I am a 20-year-old trans man living and going to school on the East Coast. This past school year, I was dating and fell in love with a wonderful trans woman from the West Coast. This relationship has been the best in my life so far. We communicate well. Our sex life is great. She has introduced me to new things and improved my life in many ways. However, throughout the course of our time together, our relationship has gradually moved away from an equal friendship-based relationship and towards one where I am supporting her emotionally and in other ways. And I'm getting nerve support in return. My girlfriend is depressed and she gets anxiety attacks easily. I can't go to her with any of my emotional needs because 
me being upset in any way will make her upset to the point where I have to comfort her instead. This is okay because I have lots of other friends and family who I can talk to to provide emotional support for me, but my girlfriend doesn't have anyone besides me to talk to. She doesn't have any friends and she doesn't get along with her family. Her depression is so bad that it made her fail all of her classes this past semester and she was asked to leave the school. So she had to move back to the West Coast to live with her family. We've been calling each other every day and we are still very much in love with each other. She is going through a really hard time right now because of the stresses of being kicked out of school and from living with her family again. They aren't in support of her transness and everyone in her family has loud and angry personalities and there's a lot of yelling at her home. The only thing that works to help her with her anxiety that she's found besides me is weed. She recently got a med card, but she doesn't have any money to buy the weed with and is having trouble motivating herself to look for a job. Neither of us have plans to move to where the other one is living and neither of us have money for plane tickets. I know that eventually we will have to break up, but she is of a very different mindset and is convinced that we're going to get married one day. I know that when I do break up with her, I'm going to break her heart. I want to end things in the kindest way possible and I don't know when and how to do it. I'm worried about what would happen to her if she didn't have me anymore. That being said, knowing me, I am going to find other people who I'm going to want to be with romantically and sexually at some point. And I think that ending things with her before that happens would probably be less painful for her than ending things because I found someone else. My questions for you are, when would be the best time to break up with her and how do I do it in the least painful way? And do you have any suggestions for how I can guide my girlfriend in finding other forms of support? You said that you provide your girlfriend with a lot of emotional support and you listen to her as she recounts to you her anxieties and whatever else is upsetting her and that you can't do the same. That If you're upset about something or anxious about something, you can't share that with her because that will only upset her more. And you pronounce that to be okay. You say, this is okay. Actually, that's not okay. That is not a relationship. You can't be in a relationship with someone where you're just the caregiver emotionally. You have to be able to be with someone who can be there for you in the same way that you're there for them. And she can't be. She is not in good working order. And you know this and you know you have to end the relationship. You've already concluded that despite loving her, that you're going to have to end this relationship. And when you know a relationship needs to end, don't ask yourself when the right time might be to end it. The right time to end it is when you know you need to end it. You should take into consideration the other person's safety emotionally. Of course, you should take timing into consideration. It is an asshole move to dump somebody on Christmas Day, on their birthday, on Valentine's Day. Asshole move. Dumping them when they're about to get on a plane and go home and see their family, maybe that's an asshole move too. But, but now is the time. And it can feel dicey breaking up with someone who has made it clear to you that they are so very dependent on you and that they are in a bad place. But then that's not a relationship. That is a hostage situation. And you have to wonder, and I've seen this play out and I'm not saying that your girlfriend is engaged in this kind of behavior. Some people will play up their dire circumstances if they know that that is the only reason the person who is with them is still with them. Not saying that she's doing that, but I am saying that that is a thing that I have seen others do. So the best time to break up is now 
And there is no unpainful way to do this. There is no way to end a relationship with someone who does not want the relationship to end without causing them a great deal of pain, without breaking their heart. You can alert the cavalry. You can let the hopefully one or two other people in her life that she can turn to for emotional support know that this is happening so they can carve out a little time to be with her and be available to her. But you can't stay with her for the rest of your life and you certainly can't marry her. You shouldn't be marrying anyone at 20 because it's going to upset her. It's a terrible position to be in to know that you are going to end something with someone and that they are in a bad place and not happy and this action that you must take is going to make it worse. But you really have no other choice. And inevitably, speak to anyone who waited and waited and waited to break up with someone they knew they needed to break up with. And the longer they waited, the worse it was in the end. The, the, the greater the pain was for the person they dumped. So my advice would be to do it considerately, compassionately, and promptly. Hey, Dan. I'm a 20-something bisexual female from California in a really amazing long-term relationship with a really wonderful partner. I've definitely orgasmed during sex. However, I've recently been masturbating with my electric toothbrush. And I found that when I've been doing that, I've been able to squirt during masturbation. I have not found that I've been able to do that during intercourse with any of my partners so far and would really love to figure out how to do that. And I'm wondering if you have any tips or tricks um, for a female uh, or if you know anyone who would have any tips for a female who wants to learn how to squirt during sex. That electric toothbrush that when you're alone and you use, you can squirt when you come, hand that electric toothbrush to the person you're having sex with and then you'll be squirting during partnered sex. You can even try incorporating that electric toothbrush during intercourse. But this is an easy one to solve. There's this thing. When you use it, you squirt. You want to be able to squirt with somebody else in the room? Hand them that thing. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about something that I know you guys are interested in because I get questions about it all the time. Where do kinks come from? Sam Hughes is a PhD student in social psychology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he studies the psychology of sexual minorities, stigma, and mental health. His work has appeared in Psychology Today and Vice. Hey, Sam, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. How about you? Uh, really good. So a lot of your research, and I've read a little bit about it, focuses on kink, their origins, but also the origin of, uh, of a kink identity. But let's start first with something that really seems to torment people who are struggling with their own kinks or if they have a partner who has a kink that they don't quite understand. Where do kinks come from? So there's a lot of theories that exist in academia around where kinks come from. Uh, there's everything from some genetic theories, theories about trauma, theories that oriented around classical conditioning. And the work I do um, generally tends to point to people that are kinky are sexualizing and recreationalizing the opposite of what causes them stress. So if you might imagine like the high CEO of a corporation, they're in a lot of uh, stressful role positions in their daily lives where they have to be in charge of other people, where they're responsible for other people. And if they find those roles stressful, then we'll often see those folks wanting to submit or wanting to be in a position where they're unimportant or where they're not responsible for their behavior. I often talk about eroticized fears that I see mm -hmm. in a lot of kinks. 
in eroticized fear, a lot of women have ravishment fantasies. Women live every day with the terror of sexual violence. And then people don't understand why there are so many women out there who have what a lot of people will call quote unquote rape fantasies, where they want to be taken by someone in the fantasy they wish to be taken by. So it's not rape, it's ravishment or something else. And people go, why would that turn people on if that is their biggest fear? And often, and I think that's what the, that for me, that's like my theory pulled out of my ass that so many kinks are eroticized fears, that seems to jibe with what you just said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's, for, for rape fantasies in particular, sort of three big categories. So for some folks, it's people who've actually experienced a sexual assault in their past, and the uh, way in which they're engaging with the fantasy uh, is one in which they can relive that experience of trauma, but in a way where they have some power over it. So, for example, we see uh, submissives in kink who enjoy the sensation of being able to take whatever comes their way, of feeling like a strong person that can manage and get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, on the one hand, we have folks who've actually experienced the sexual assault who are fantasizing about it. On the other hand, we also have folks that experience a lot of stress around having to prevent rape. So we exist in a culture that often puts the blame on women for their own experiences of sexual assault. And as a result of that, um, there's all of these messages around, like, here's particular types of keys you need to buy in order to fight against your attacker. Here's the particular ways in which you need to dress in order to avoid sexual assault. Here's what you need to do with your drink at a party. And all of those stressors can build up over time. And so uh, for some women, at least, being able to engage in a way where they're, uh, at least in a fantasy context, um, in which those stressors are gone, where there isn't anything they can do to prevent it, is one way that they're alleviating that stress. We don't want to pathologize women. Men do this, too. I think of all the gay men in the world that I know, some personally, who eroticize homophobic archetypes. You know, you think of gay men, gay male fantasy figures, cops, firemen, truckers, Mm -hmm. marines, sailors, not typically pro-gay professions, not exactly ballet dancers and hairdressers. And yet Mm -hmm. often this focus of erotic obsession for a lot of gay men because they're afraid of them. Absolutely. Um, It is more common for women than it is for men to have fantasies about being the victim of a sexual assault. Um, I think the other thing that this is going to be true for both genders um, and also lots of other genders in between um, is people that have a sense of wanting to feel desired. And so part of the idea of the rape fantasy is that someone uh, is so attracted to you you that you're so desirable that they sort of lose control over everything, that they throw off the basic morals and basic decency that we have in society because you're so irresistible. And so especially for for people who might have worries about how attractive they are or experience some stress around that, that might also be a source of it. So you do research on kink, where they come from, how kink identities are formed. Some people will tell you... uh, they enjoy these kinks, and some people will tell you they are kinky. They identify as kinky. Is kink mm-hmm. a sustainable identity? Is it, as Jillian Keenan argues, a sexual orientation? Yeah, so I think that it's at least a component of sexual orientation. Um, the, the model that I often use is uh, Sari von Anders' model, which argues that instead of thinking about um, gender as like the single component of sexual orientation, we have multiple dimensions of sexual orientation. So some of them are about what genders we're attracted to. Some of them are about whether we're attracted to multiple people at the same time or only a single person. And then some of them are also about kink and the particular kink interests that we have. And they tend to be something that's relatively sustained over time. Well, people generally, especially in the kink community, will get kinkier over time. Uh, there's, there's a joke sometimes in the community that the difference between hell no and hell yes is about six months. 
Wait, I want to stop you there. Also, the difference in that six months period of time between Hell No and Hell Yes is usually a growing feeling of safety and trust with the person you're exploring those kinks with. Because sometimes someone you just met wants to do X and you don't really know them very well and you're not ready for X. You're ready for, you know, F and G and H. And, and, and actually, when they do those simpler, less sort of high stakes JV kinks with you and show you that they're responsible and it's about consent and they listen and they respect a safe word, then you might be ready for the hell yes that you held note earlier down the road. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely part of it is about building trust with an individual partner. But there's a couple of other ways, too. So one of them is people realizing kinks that they didn't even know existed. So a lot of folks have never heard of, for example, fire play before until they join the kink community and seeing it, see it being done live. Mm-hmm. And so the thought of being like lit on fire at sort of an initial stage when they've never seen it before is this like terrifying concept. So that's part of it is realizing kinks uh, that they never do existed exist. And the other part of it is seeing other people, particularly at kink parties or at public dungeons, engaging in different types of kinks and seeing how much pleasure and how much joy and intimacy it can bring them and thinking, hmm, this might be something that I want to try. Um, sometimes there's something in the kink community called sub-frenzy, and it's this experience of like being a kid in a candy store where all of a sudden this whole kink world is open to you, and so you sort of want to try everything. And unfortunately, that can also lead to some burnout, um, especially for some newer people who like are jumping straight into the fire without doing a lot of negotiation and consent first. You've identified what you call five phases of kink identity development. Can you walk us through those five phases? Yeah, so the first phase is early encounters. These typically happen before the age of 10, and they're often stories of having some attraction or fascination to some particular kink interest, but usually it doesn't take on a sexual connotation, and often they don't have the language to describe it. So, for example, we see kids playing cops and robbers and always wanting to be the one that gets tied up. Uh, Or we see kids that are attracted to television shows or stories in which people are being captured or people are being punished. Sometimes it also has to deal with particular material. Um, particularly for fetishists. So we'll see, you know, people that are putting on a diaper uh, or people that are putting on stockings and they feel an incredibly powerful sensation. Um, And even though they're not necessarily identifying that as an erotic feeling, um, it's a feeling that might eventually turn into eroticism later on. And what's stage two? Um, So, yeah, so that's the early encounter stage. Uh, Stage two is exploration with self. So that's usually people exploring their kink interests alone. Uh, Typically, this happens through fantasizing. It might be drawing or creating erotica. Uh, Masturbating to pornography is fairly common during this phase. Uh, And that's usually happening in the, like, 5 to 10 phase, and sometimes it's spilling over into uh, early adolescence, although certainly masturbating and fantasizing will continue throughout the lifespan. Um, But it's usually not until a little bit later in childhood that some of the the fantasies start to take hold. So this actually, let's pause here in these uh-huh. phases. This is very true for a lot of kinky people I know and have spoken mm-hmm. to and kinky people I've loved, where they, some will say it's my sexual orientation and because it predates my awareness of whether I was attracted to men or women or both, that I was mm-hmm. fascinated, you know, being the kid who wanted to be tied up during cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians or mm-hmm. fascinated by spanking or diapers or whatever when I was five and six and seven and eight, just obsessed mm-hmm. with it. And then that carried through t- and became sexualized mm-hmm. at puberty. And so people will say, I was aware that, you know, Jillian Keenan makes this argument. I was mm-hmm. interested in spanking before I knew I was interested in men. Mm-hmm. And so now phase three. Yeah. So uh, phase three is evaluation. And this is typically taking place in the early adolescent phase from about 11 to 14. 
Um, and this is where they're asking questions about who am I? What does my kink interest mean for who I am, for my identity, for whether or not I'm a good person? Mm. And so we'll see people trying to find a label or trying to find a name for it. And if you Google kink, often what you'll get is a Wikipedia article on paraphilic uh, or paraphilias in the DSM, um, which can be a really pathologizing experience for some folks. Um, it's often a time in which they're worried that there might be something wrong with them or something that's sick, something very similar to what a lot of LGBTQ teens experience. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they're going through a lot of those processes of settling on who they are, just as uh, early adolescents are doing that for all the other aspects of their identity. So often early adolescents are making questions about what does my racial identity mean, uh, what kind of clique that I'm a part of, and what are my interests, and how do those interests uh, can help construct my identity. And quickly, phase four and five, because I have one last question I want to get to before we run out of time. Um, so phase four uh, is finding others. That's when they realize that they're not alone, that there's other kinky people out there. It's often facilitated by the internet or by magazines. Um, there are some people that don't realize that they're alone until much later in life, but typically this happens after 11, that they realize that they're not alone and there's other people out there. And then the last phase is actually engaging in kink with others. Um, so typically this is like their first scene. For a lot of people, they cited this as when they felt like their kink identity was fully formed. Um, some other people would talk about like going to a store and buying their first flogger with a friend and that being a really salient moment where they really felt kinky. What I hear from a lot of people with that first experience, uh, people mm -hmm. will tell me, I wanted to get out there and do this and get it out of my system. Mm -hmm. Because people sometimes have it in their head that this obsession that, you know, with being mm -hmm. tied up or doing X, whatever X kink might be, uh, it just, it's a boil that they need to lance. And once lanced, mm -hmm. uh, they will be normal. And some mm -hmm. people after that first experience, some people, they get to phase five uh, of your five phases and they're not happy about it. I hear mm -hmm. from them. They call me or their partners mm -hmm. call me. You know, I gave him permission mm -hmm. to see a dominatrix to get it out of his system. And they're mm -hmm. shocked to discover that kink isn't something that you get out of your system. It's not like that mm -hmm. trip to Paris he always wanted to take and you can scratch that mm -hmm. off your bucket list. That you're going to want to do it again. Just like if you're into vanilla sex, you're not going to get that out of your system. You're going to want to do that again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and we definitely know that there are people who, because they get into a vanilla relationship and they don't talk about their kink interests beforehand, often that can lead to an unsatisfying sex life in the same way that a gay man married to a straight woman often has really unsatisfying sex. I and get so, in so much trouble when I try to explain this to vanilla people because they will mm -hmm. say, why, you, why do you have to do this thing if it's going to destroy our relationship? Why mm -hmm. am I not more important to you than a letter in last week's Savage Love? This woman is mm -hmm. just absolutely distressed and unhinged that her husband is into diapers and has been, mm -hmm. according to his mother, because she went and talked to his mother and outed him to his mother, has been since mm -hmm. he was seven years old. Totally fits into everything that we've talked about. That mm -hmm. When he was seven years old, his mother was finding diapers hidden in his room. Mm -hmm. And now he's an adult man into diapers. And his wife writes me wanting me to tell him this is not who you are. And I had to tell her, yes, it is. This is who he is. Yeah, and there's this narrative that exists in society that as long as you're in love with someone, the like sex will just sort of follow. And that narrative has been both really harmful for kinky people who are with vanilla partners and often are having a lot of sexual struggles there. It's also really harmful to a lot of women who often have a challenge talking to their partner about really basic anatomy things like where the clitoris is. And that's part of why sex can be so unsatisfying when people aren't communicating about it beforehand. And they do need to communicate. And you need to, as I say to kinksters, once you know what your kinks are, you got to lay those kink cards on the table because you don't want to mm -hmm. bottle that up and wind up with somebody 
that you're not going to be fulfilled by and who is not going to be fulfilled by you. And this stuff is going to come out in mm-hmm. the end because sex is powerful and your mm-hmm. kinks are not some trivial thing that you can ignore. Right. And, and critically importantly, it's not just communicating about what somebody's kinks are, but also what they're hoping to get out of it. So I'm envisioning, you know, if two people are getting together and they're like, yeah, let's do a spanking scene. We're both into spanking. But one of them wants to relive a traumatic childhood memory of being abused by their parent. while another one just wants to do cutesy birthday spankings. They're not necessarily going to have a very satisfying scene. And so talking about the broader meanings behind the activities that they want to do and how they want to feel from it is really critically important. Yeah, some people want to do a spanking scene where it's about joy and laughter, mm-hmm. and some people want to do mm-hmm. a spanking scene that ends in in tears and sobs. And mm-hmm. the person who wants mm-hmm. the latter is probably going to be traumatized or unhappy or not enjoy the experience uh, with mm-hmm. the person who wants the former or vice versa. I think I got that backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of people that even talk about kink as a form of healing from traumatic experiences, that it looks very similar to what we see in exposure therapy, where negotiation is the preparation stage, the actual kink context is exposure, and then the aftercare is a way to sort of recenter oneself and reflect on the experience that they had in a way to deal with trauma or phobias that they've had to go through in their lives. I, I often use the, the spanking example, though. D- just to, to complicate that or, or to f- flush that out more fully, because that is true. There are some people in Kinkland who are in a controlled way mm-hmm. tapping into some trauma and, and, and taming it uh, and, and being in control of the experience and finding joy in it now in, mm-hmm. in a way they didn't when it was unconsensual or, and, and, and traumatizing, the original trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are just as many, if not more, who it's not about trauma. And the example I always use is spanking. You will talk to people who are into spanking and half will tell you they're into spanking because they Mm -hmm. were spanked as a child and it became Mm -hmm. oddly eroticized for them. And it was traumatic and and not pleasant, Mm -hmm. but they enjoy it now as an adult and are in control of it now as an adult in the way they weren't controlled as a child. But you talk to just as many people into spanking who weren't spanked as children, who were never Mm -hmm. uh, hit or or, or Mm -hmm. beaten by an authority figure. and But they talk about having been fascinated by hearing about other people who were spanked. And wanted that experience for themselves. So I, I just don't want to, again, pathologize. Not that if you found a way, if you had a traumatic experience and you, your erotic imagination processed mm-hmm. it and it turned it into something joyful and pleasurable for you, that's not a pathology. But a lot of people out there who aren't kinky just think kinky people are acting out or reliving mm-hmm. trauma. And that's sometimes true, but not always mm-hmm. true. And it's not a pathology even when it is. And- so I'm a bit of a statistics geek. So I actually have a stat on this now oh, from awesome. <laughs> um, a study where we, we asked kinky people where they perceive their own kinks as coming from. And only 18% of kinky people identified some form of, of trauma as the original like place where their kink is coming from. That is a handy so it's, stat it's, to have. It's there, but it's definitely not the majority. Sam Hughes, PhD student, social psychology, University of California, Santa Cruz, where he studies sexual minority stigma and mental health. Where can listeners who are interested in what we're talking about find more of your work? So my work is going to be published on the blog column of the Politics, Culture, and Identity Lab website um, at the University of California, Santa Cruz. A lot of it ends up in academic journals, which are usually behind a paywall. Um, but I do have some work uh, that's come out in Psychology Today um, that's focusing on the study we were talking about today, as well as a piece in Vice that talks about the uh, criminalization of masturbation in U.S. prisons. Sam Hughes, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was a fascinating conversation. I hope you'll come back uh, and join us again. I'd love to. I'll have lots more papers coming out soon. Awesome. Thanks. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-40s guy in the Midwest, and I'm dating my late 30s girlfriend. The problem that we're having, everything is going well. It's that her family doesn't particularly like me. 
and she's really close to her family, and they don't seem to like me because I went to college, and that I sometimes use bigger words that they don't understand. That's actually a direct quote. And so I don't know what I can do because it's causing her some degree of, of pain and discomfort uh, by how uh, her family is reacting and that she doesn't want to bring me around her family because they, they give her the side eye and she feels really upset and stressed out by it. Uh, but she does love her family and wants to be close to them. And, you know, I, I try to be gracious and stay out of the way. Uh, this really is how I talk, and I'm not trying to be condescending or look down on them. And so I'm not sure what else I can do. Uh, and I'm afraid that if I tried talking more simply or, you know, I'm not sure how to do that without sounding really condescending. So any advice you could give would, would help other than just trying to stay out of their way as much as I can. I didn't exactly have to run your question through Google Translate. That sounded like pretty basic, relatively simple, straightforward, decipherable English to me. So I don't understand what her parents or her family are so put off by. I suspect the highfalutin language issue is just a placeholder for class resentment, education resentment, political differences, and they just attribute it to your having gone to college. I do think avoiding them is the best strategy. When your girlfriend wants to hang out with her family, let her go on her own to hang out with her family. If there's a wedding or a funeral where your attendance is required, where your absence would be a bigger affront than your occasional $30 college word, then go. But bring your phone and sit in the pews during the wedding, play Candy Crush, keep to yourself. Also, bide your time. Family sometimes will be hostile to somebody's new girlfriend or somebody's new boyfriend in hopes that that will convince the family member who brought this new girlfriend or boyfriend home to ditch this person, to not be in relationship with this person. If your relationship continues, if you wind up staying together long term, often what happens is once the family realizes that their hostility didn't work, that the tantrum that they pitched didn't work and you were there – they realize that they have to adjust and they will find things in the end that they do have in common with you that they will come around. And it's not necessarily coming around. It's an admission of defeat. They probably still won't like you, but they won't be so demonstrative. They won't be so aggressive about telegraphing their dislike to you and their daughter or their sister or their niece or their granddaughter or whatever because – they're just going to have to get used to you because you're not going anywhere and they're going to have to make the best of it. So this opposition that you feel so intensely now, if you become a long-running forever fact, it'll probably fall away. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. So I have a question regarding a friend of mine. I'm calling you to ask you because Maya, I don't want to you know, hurt her by asking any of my other friends. So basically, I have a girl, a woman that I've been friends with for over 10 years. I love her to death. You know, we've lived hundreds of miles apart. We visit each other. At least we used to visit each other fairly regularly, spend, you know, weeks in each other's houses, um, sometimes share the same bed. Over the last few years, she has gone the route of the gutter punk. Generally speaking, that type of stuff doesn't faze me. 
um, personally, she, you know, her personality is still the same. However, people she hangs out with, they've brought bed bugs into her house on a matter of times. I think there's been lice around. They all have dreadlocks. I know she's clean. I know she showers, but it doesn't mean they're not bringing it in. And then the other part of this, so basically she wants to come visit me. There's two reasons why I'm unsure about this. Number one is the, what I just stated, the, the, you know, possible lice or bed bugs. I know currently she doesn't have them, but I know not long ago she did in the house. And then the other one is she is very free with her body. She wears a tiny little dress all the time, the same dress. Um, and she does not wear any underwear. And she tries to kind of hide it a little bit, but, you know, she's kind of a a hippie and forgets and, you know, she'll bend over to pick up a rock and next thing you know, you're looking at her vagina. But that doesn't face me so much as like, she's sitting on my car seat. She's sitting on my couch. She, like I said, will sleep in my bed. You know, my family's around. Do my nephews need to see her vagina? I don't know. I I hate to hurt her. I mean, I can't think of another way to tell her not to come up when all she wants to do is spend time. Like, there's no excuse. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't want to hurt her. Her emotional state, I don't want to make her cry. And I don't know how to how to get around this without making her cry. You're either going to have to say something and risk hurting your friend or you're going to have to let her come and stay and deal with your own anxieties about bed bugs and lice and pantyless and your nephew clocking her vag. I would, if I were in your shoes, say something. She lives far away. She has these new crusty friends. She's gotten bed bugs and lice. And you know that because she must have told you. I assume that wasn't on Anderson Cooper tonight that she told you about the bed bugs and the lice. So you should say to her, you're coming to visit. Bed bugs sometimes travel. They get into people's clothing, get into their luggage, and somebody else's house is infested. So, honey, I love you. What's the bed bug situation like right now? You dealing with an infestation? What's up? You can also ask the same thing about lice. Lice happens even to very fine, very clean, very non-hippie people. Lice doesn't come, but nor do bed bugs come bundled with certain lifestyle choices. And I think you should be able to say to a friend, like in the same way somebody says when you enter their house, we're a shoeless house and you have to take your shoes off at the door. You can say to your friend, this is a panty wearing house. My nephew is around. That dress is really short. I don't particularly want to see your vag. So come and visit. Bring a longer dress or bring a few pairs of panties or you can borrow a few pairs of my own. You also have a right to say to somebody, I'm no longer comfortable sleeping in the same bed. We used to do that 10 years ago. We were younger then. So I got a pull-out bed. I got an air mattress. That's where you're sleeping because I'm not into the sharing a bed thing anymore. And if they get their noses bent out of joint about that, then they don't have to visit. Hi, Dan and the Tech Saviat Rescue. I'm a 33-year-old queer cis female uh, living in Canada. Um, about two years ago, I moved to a small rural community, which has been my plan for some years now. Um, I'm super happy. It's really beautiful here. I really see the future that I want living in this community. However, I've been here for about two years. I would say it's been about two and a half years since 
the last time I got laid. Online dating out here is, I don't know, <laughs> pretty sparse. I've tried uh, FetLife, like a bunch of different online dating things, and it usually just ends with things being overly creepy between me and other people or, you know, just being ghosted. I don't know. I guess I'm just getting pretty frustrated. And I'm just wondering if you have any tips finding people in the out yonder. My advice for queer people way out yonder who want to find potential partners is move to a big city or big city adjacent. There are yonders that are closer to urban centers or yonders that are close to still rural and small town feeling college towns. And you will have more options in those places than you have out in the boonies. If you want to live out in the woods and you want to be partnered, the best strategy is to move to a bigger place or move to a college town in a small place, find a partner, and then together move out to the sticks. Yeah, the pickings are going to be slim where there are fewer people. Queers are a tiny percentage of the population. Most queers leave small towns so that they have more options. Even queers who enjoy small town or rural living often have to leave those places because you can't just suck off the parish priest in the truck stop for the rest of your life if you want a real relationship. So maybe I have an urbanist bias. I grew up in Chicago. Maybe I'm a big cityist. But my advice for you, move back. Hi, Dan. I am calling about the woman in episode 607 who was wondering if she should come out to her parents about dancing. And as a former dancer myself, I would say to not tell your parents because the turnover is so high. And you might think that, you know, two years in, you see yourself doing this for as long as possible. But a lot of girls leave maybe three years in, five years in. So just letting you know my opinion. Hi, I'm actually calling about episode 607, the woman that asked how she could explain to her family that she was a stripper. My daughter is a stripper, and when I found out, I was surprised, but came to accept it and even understand why it was so valuable for her. Her father, on the other hand, didn't know, and we were all covering for her about it, and I got uncomfortable with that, so I suggested that she write him a letter and tell him what she was doing and why she liked it and let him know that if he had any questions about it, he was welcome to ask, but she wasn't interested in his opinion. His response was that he was happy she was happy, despite him not being so happy about it, and that was that. And she was off the hook, and we were all off the hook from having to lie for her anymore. And that was a great outcome. So that's what I would do if I were this young woman. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. One great way to support three great organizations fighting Trump, itmfa.org, impeach the motherfucker already. Go there, get t-shirts, hats, buttons, lapel pins, coffee mugs, and people will ask you when they see you in your itmfa t-shirt what that means, and you get to tell them, and it's fun, and it raises money for the American Civil Liberties Union, for the International Refugee Assistance Project, which is also fighting family separation, and for Planned Parenthood. 
and I will be in New York City later this week to host Black Box Playlist. I picked eight really gay songs from Pride, and eight writers wrote short plays based on them. For more information about that show, and it sounds like it's going to be fascinating and fun, and I will be there, go to blackboxplaylist3.brownpapertickets.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy At Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for